Um, I guess it's been <clears throat> 14 years ago. I'm showing my age a little bit more. <clears throat> I started a job with Advance Auto Parts, which is really funny because I didn't know anything about vehicles. And when I say I didn't know anything about vehicles, I knew it took a key. I knew they had tires. That's about it. I had a guy come up, said he had a four-cylinder uh, Cavalier. I asked him, he said he needed spark plugs. I said, how many? And he looked at me. If you got four cylinders, you get four spark plugs. For those of y'all that don't know that, <clears throat> I didn't know it. He's like, I guess I need four. I'm like, okay, I'll get you four then, all right? You want 28? I'll get you 28. You want two? I don't care. I got them all back there, brother. But um, I only share that with you because <clears throat> I learned something. I learned a lot of things at Advance. I tell people all the time, I'm glad I worked there, and I'm glad I don't work there. That's where I stand with Advance. I learned a lot. And probably the most important thing that I learned at Advance and saw in triplicate and quadruplicate was the importance of one single part. If you're working on your vehicle and you need six parts and we had five of them, guess who wasn't happy? The person who needed six parts. And sometimes it was as small as a little tiny nut or a little tiny boat, or something very small. But if that one, an O-ring, yeah, how many times did we not have O-rings that fit something? And you, could, you couldn't fix your vehicle because you were missing that one part. And what was worse is a lot of times we'd show it on hand and we'd go back in the slot where it was supposed to be and it wasn't there. And then they started online ordering so people could order ahead and it would show them that we had it and we'd go back to pull it and it wasn't there. So they get there ready to get their part and guess what? We ain't got it. And we got to send them to Harper Road or we got to send them to Lewisburg because they've got it or whatever. And then they drive to Lewisburg and guess what? Lewisburg ain't got it. So we got mud in our face a lot because of that. The importance of one single, sometimes seemingly insignificant part cannot be overstated. It's just one part. Just one part. Just, just an O-ring, just a nut, just a bolt. And somebody couldn't go to work the next day because we didn't have it. And it became a pretty big deal to that person who needed that part. Well, today, we're going to see something very similar as we look at these five verses. Really, technically, it's four verses. We'll get to that when we get to verse 11. But the importance of one single person. How important is one single person in God's economy to Jesus Christ? So if you would, please stand. We're going to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. And we stand because we know and are firmly convinced that these are the very words of God. And when God speaks, we show respect and honor and reverence. So we stand. Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. <clears throat> See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? <clears throat> Excuse me. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven <coughs> that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we ask that you would supervise and oversee the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, teach us and instruct us so that you might get glory in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to get a drink. I still need a hydraulic lift to take me up and down here. So. <clears throat> Just for dramatic effect, however. <clears throat> so, we find ourselves here <clears throat> in Matthew 18 in the midst of a major discourse of Jesus. <clears throat> and this discourse is regarding the believer being seen and known as a little child. We saw in the first message a couple weeks ago, 
from this chapter that as the disciples argued about who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus brought a little child into their midst, took that child into his arms, and said that to even get into the kingdom of heaven, one had to be converted and become like that little child. He then told them that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself like that little child that was in his arms. And then last week, Jesus' focus turned to the danger of making one of his little ones, one of those who believe in him, to sin. He said that it would be better for that person to have a great millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea. And then he made a point to make sure that his people deal with their own sin, their internal sin drastically, to the point of hyperbolically saying that you should gouge out your eye or cut off your limbs to make sure that you don't lead yourself into sin as his child. So he was dealing with personal accountability and corporate accountability. Deal with your own sin and make sure that you're not leading others into sin. And again, the object lesson in the midst of it all is this little child that is in Jesus' arms. And we know that it means baby or toddler, that little child. That child is the object lesson. So in that discourse, and in the discourse that we're still in, on the believer as a little child of God, we've already seen a consistent call for the Christian, the believer, these little ones. Again, the little ones means Christians, followers of Jesus. There's a consistent call in this discourse for the Christian to be humble, to be dependent, and to be conscious of others as a matter of first importance. Now, as we move into today's passage, we see Jesus continue his focus on how we as believers should relate to one another, keeping with the themes of humility, dependence, and others' consciousness. And this is done in a very pointed way, starting in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now what's going on here? We're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning in this verse. What is Jesus saying to his men and and by association to us in this verse at this point of his teaching? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Well again, he's emphasizing the child that's in his arms, making that child the very visible object lesson of what being a Christian looks like. And as he continues to hold and point to this child, he tells his men to see that they do not despise one of these little ones. So let's start with that opening phrase, see that you do. See that you do is actually one Greek word, and it's negativized, which is not a word, but I just made it up. Negativized by putting a not on it. So see that you do negatively, which means don't do. But see that you do is one Greek phrase. All those words are one Greek thought, and it means to take heed, beware, care for, pay heed to. It's a call to be very careful to make yourself aware of something. It's a warning And a command at the same time. It's got to feel like he's saying, make sure you get this. Make sure you understand this. Make sure you do this. Or in this case, make sure you don't do this. This has to be noted and done. Or not done in this case. There's an imperativeness in it. And in this case, it's a call to make sure that something doesn't happen. See that you do not. See that make sure that something doesn't happen. And what is it that he's saying that we should make sure that is to not happen? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Hmm. Now we have to make sure that we don't miss this. This is really this is everything that going forward in this passage revolves around. See that. Make sure that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now the you in that statement is plural. So he's talking to the disciples as a group, so it's for all of them. And I would note that all of them means that it affects them as a group and as individuals. If I say you, I'm talking to all of you, and I'm talking to each of you individually as well. Nobody 
who is listening to Jesus' command here gets out of this. Nobody is not responsible. Is that right? Yeah. Nobody is not responsible. I need to double or triple my negative there. Nobody in the group can get out of this. It's for you, all of you, and you, each of you. So this is for us all, collectively and as individuals as well. So if you're a believer, a disciple of Jesus, this command is for you. And what is the command that we are commanded not to do? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And I'm going to read that a few more times, so just be ready. Jesus re-emphasizes this little child in his arms and sternly warns his men and us to make sure that we do not despise one of these little ones that represent those who are in his kingdom, those who believe in him. Now, keep that in mind. This is not about little children. This is about little children representing believers. So other believers, make sure that you do not despise anyone of these other believers. See to it. Make sure that you do not despise another believer. I don't know about you, but when I think despise, I think it to hate something. I despise peas. I mean, I despise them. They are from the very pit of... Amen. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you. Ho, ho, ho. I hate them. And so when I think of despising something, I think of peas. I hate them. They make me sick. Blech. <clears throat> Amen. Man, that's just a sense. Of... <laughs> and so, so when I think despise, that's what I think of. And it can mean that. So don't do that. Don't hate another believer. It's okay to hate peas. Not, not another believer. But it means much more than that. Okay? <clears throat> Watch this. Here's the Greek word. Kataphroneo. Nine times in the New Testament it's used, and it's translated as despise all nine times. But it means, here's the definition, to condemn, to despise, to disdain, to think little or nothing of. Now that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Read that again. Linger over it for just a minute. Jesus is saying not to despise one of these little ones. Don't condemn them. Don't disdain them. Do not think little or nothing of another believer. If Jesus is calling us to make sure that we don't do something, it's important that we make sure that we know what He's saying not to do. If I'm to make sure I don't despise another believer, what am I not to do? I'm not to condemn them. Now we celebrate the wonder of Romans 8.1 for ourselves, don't we? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen. I am no longer condemned. But wait. Do I condemn other believers? The word condemn means that we express total disapproval of someone or sentence them to a very severe punishment saying that they got what they deserved. Do I do that to other believers? Well, I shouldn't, Jesus says. He actually says to see that I don't. Another word in that definition for despise is to disdain. Now, that's a fun word to say, disdain. What's it mean, though? Listen, it means that I have the feeling that someone or something is unworthy of my consideration or respect. It means that I have contempt. For that person. It has a kind of an eye rolling. Peshaw type. That person. They said that. How stupid. Don't do that. To another believer. Because it means that I treat someone. As one who is below me. Someone who I. Am superior to. And therefore they are inferior to me. Now let me ask you a question. You ever feel that way toward another believer? Watch your heart. You ever feel that way toward one of your brothers or sisters in Christ? Well, Jesus says, see to it that you don't. 
And then that last part of the definition for despise says, and this is the hardest one, I think, to think little or nothing of. Now, I think that can have a couple of different connotations here. It could mean that I literally just don't think of someone much quantitatively, how many times I think of them. Like I don't have many thoughts about them that cross my mind. Or it can mean that I don't think much of them qualitatively. Like they are not much in my mind as a person. That has the same feel as the disdain thought, I think. And I think both the quantity and the quality of my thoughts about other believers is very important in what Jesus is saying here. How many times am I thinking about other believers? And how am I thinking of them when I do think of them? And along with the mental aspect of just my thoughts, I would surely say that how I feel about them is included in all this. How do I think and feel about other believers? And not just believers as a grouping in my head, but Jesus says to make sure that we do not despise one of these little ones. Not one of them. Not one. Look around. Nobody. No individual. Not just in this building, but those who aren't here with us, those who can't be here with us, those we may never even see. How do I think about them? How do I feel about them? Because I'm not to despise one of them. Not one. And there is an emphasis in this passage today on one. I can say that I love the people of God. But do I think and feel rightly about each person of God? Because that's what Jesus is addressing here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And I hope we see this point clearly. And then Jesus is going to spend the rest of this passage expanding on this thought. He tells us why we should not despise one of these little ones. And then he gives us an illustration of what it looks like and what he means by that. So we're still in verse 10 when we see the why question answered. See that you do not despise one of these little ones for, I tell you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Ooh, this is a big deal. What does this mean? Make sure you don't look down on any one individual believer because in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now this might take a little bit of ciphering. So this part of this verse has been used as an explanation of people, or especially babies, having guardian angels. But remember, what does the baby represent here? It represents a believer. Okay? So this is not about babies having guardian angels. That's not what this is saying. And actually, there's nowhere in the Bible that talks about people having guardian angels. Remember, we're talking about the little one as a believer. And so what he's saying here is don't look down on any one Christian because their angels, see the plural there? Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now we're talking about one we got a singular, then we got a plural. And we don't take it as a guardian angel because that's not in the Bible. Actually, the, the concept for a guardian angel comes from the apocryphal Jewish story of Tobit, which is a beautiful story. I encourage you to read it. It's not in the Bible. It's not gospel. It's a story. The Bible speaks of angels in a lot of passages doing a lot of different things. Now, the word angel is agalos, agalos and it means messenger. So angels are messengers. Not guardian angels, messengers. And they do a lot of different things. I'm just going to go kind of spitball. I think there's one, two, three, four, four three passages here that talk about some things that angels do. <clears throat> Are they not all, these angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is in Hebrews 1.14. And it's contrasting 
Jesus and the angels because some people were saying that Jesus was just an angel that God sent down. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, he's much greater than the angels. Angels are ministering spirits that are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So they're ministering spirits. Psalm 91, 11 through 12. For he, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So angels do serve to help protect us. That's for sure. But the devil used this against Jesus in his temptation saying, Hey, won't you uh, show your miracle power here because throw yourself off here because God's not going to let you even strike your foot against a stone. He'll send angels to protect you. And Jesus said, That's not how this works, guy. Now look at this one. So they protect us. They do protect us. Not like a guardian angel, but they do protect us. Watch this one. 1 Corinthians 11.10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. He's talking about in worship. Because of the angels. Now what? Everybody's like, you're going to talk about head coverings? All these ladies are going, "Uh uh-oh. This verse points out angels as observers of our worship services. They're watching us worship. Why? Because they don't know nothing about this. They've never been redeemed. And the ones that fail with Satan will not be redeemed. So they watch us and they glory, glorify and, and lift up God because they're like, look what you've done for these people. These, these are like little slugs and you've, you've like poured your love on them. We want to see this. We want to see what this is all about. So Paul is saying here, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Show that she's under the authority of her husband. Why? So that the angels will see it and see they understand authority. Now again, we don't have time to expand on that. But they're observers of our worship. And we saw this back in Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here, angels go and gather everything out of God's kingdom that's not supposed to be there, and they throw these people into the fiery furnace. So they're kind of like garbage collectors, too, throwing the rubbish into the fire. So they do a lot of things. They do, here's the deal they do what God tells them to do. And they're looking for the activity of God in our world so that they might. Bring a message, protect, watch and glorify God, and finally do God's ultimate bidding. And there are a lot of other references to angels and their role, and we just looked at these few just to see a few things today. And then back to our passage today, we see that angels, these messengers, are assigned to believers and are constantly in the presence of God, always seeing His face. And as they are messengers and servants to God's people, this passage shows that they are in the very presence of God. Now watch this. Waiting to be dispatched by God Himself if someone despises one of His children. Any one of His children. That tells me that God Himself will deal with someone despising or looking down on one of His children by sending an angel or angels plural to deal with that issue. Now that does not mean that these angels are going to come down with their harps and play a pretty song for a believer who gets their feelings hurt and that makes them feel better. we got to get rid of that picture of angels in our head that, that has been handed to us through film or whatever. When people see angels in the Bible, what's their first reaction? Hit the deck. Terror. You don't see an angel and go, oh, so pretty. Oh, how cute. You are cute. Did God send you for me? No, 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 no. Terror. Falling on your face, terror. So, angels are mighty, awesome beings and God dispatches these mighty warriors when we as believers look down on any other believer. 
Because you see, here's the deal. There's a spiritual war going on that is manifested in how we treat each other as believers. And if you despise or look down on or think little of another believer, there is a literal battle going on in the heavenly places with God fighting for the despised one. Now don't overlook this or dismiss it. Jesus is showing, listen to me, the cosmic bigness of this deal. This is not a sideline issue. This is not a small deal. It is a cosmically big deal. It's an issue that is presented in the very presence of God by holy angels who will be sent to deal with it. Now do you think this is important? Our disdain for a common earthbound believer shakes the very throne room of God. Gulp. And remember, the focus is on one. One. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Not even one. Dismiss them. Not important. Making a big deal out of nothing. Get out of here. You're getting on my nerves. And the very throne room of God is reverberating with the command of God sending angels to the one who has been despised. This is a big deal. Now look at verse 11. Yeah. If you're looking at the ESV, that's what you see when you look at verse 11. Because it's not there. Okay? And if you remember when I read, if you, if you was paying attention, you should have been observing. It went from 10 to 12. ESV does not have verse 11. The authorized version, the New King James have it. And it says this, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Most reliable transcripts and all of the earliest manuscripts do not contain this verse. So it was an addition at a later time. And some of you are going, oh, the Bible is... Errors? Nope. Nope. In their original autographs, which means the person who wrote them was 100% inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And every word that Matthew wrote was breathed out by God and written down by Matthew's pen. This verse was inserted later... By a scribe somewhere is what this means. So it was, it, was, it was an addition at a later time. Now, the Bible does say this in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But this verse in Luke 19 is in reference to lost people, not believers. And we know back in Matthew 18 that Jesus is speaking about His people, His little ones. So I feel very comfortable saying that this verse was a later edition by some scribe or some other person in the translation or copy work for the Bible. Does that mean that your Bible is not reliable? Your Bible today is more reliable than anything they've had in the last thousand years. Because the textual criticism that's in place takes care of all these things. And you get notes and you get, oh, this was added later. It's okay, yeah. And you can see that it's in there but not in this context. So don't let this shake your faith. It is, a, is both, in my opinion, a very faith-challenging and a very faith-strengthening exercise to investigate the history of the Bible and how it came to be and what we have in our hands today. And I encourage you to do it. Now, it might shake your faith a little bit, I'm going to tell you. But when you get done, your faith is going to be stronger than it was than when you started. So when you see things like this, bring them up. Let's talk about them. Let's address them because there's nothing to fear here. So that's verse 11. So we're going to move on to verse 12. What do you think, Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? Okay, so here's the illustration that we talked about. Emphasizes the concept of an individual believer in this passage. Jesus, in drawing attention to the importance of each and every single believer, says, what do you think? He's calling his men to reflection and purposeful thought. He's calling them to focus their thoughts on a particular concept. What do you think? 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So get this picture in your head. Don read this morning two passages that talked about the Lord as a shepherd. Jesus, I'm the good shepherd. And the shepherd will draw them up into his arms there in Isaiah. And so get that picture in your head. Jesus is like a shepherd. A man has a hundred sheep. That would mean this man has a lot of sheep, by the way. Hundreds a lot. Somebody had a hundred sheep at this time. He would be considered fairly wealthy. And what if one of those sheep goes astray? What if out of these 100 sheep, one of them wanders off like they're so prone to do? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I, I, I won't belabor this point, but sheep are not very smart. That's us, y'all. Sheep do dumb stuff. There have been sheep who have like literally beat their heads to death because they couldn't get around a tree. Boom, 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 boom. They're stupid. I won't belabor that, but they do dumb stuff. They need the protection and guidance of a shepherd, listen to me, and they need the accountability of the rest of the flock. They are no good on their own. Sheep have zero good defense mechanisms. What are they going to do? Bah! 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 No good defense mechanisms. They could fall in a ditch and not get out. They could fall in a stream and drown. Their strength and protection are found in the shepherd and the flock as a group. So one sheep lost and alone somewhere is really just another word for a dead animal. Or lunch for some jackal, hyena, lion, or any other number of predators. And if that one sheep has gone astray, one out of a hundred, what will the shepherd do? Shrug and give it, oh well, it's just one. No big deal, stuff happens, we lose sheep sometimes. Jesus says in this story that any good shepherd would never do such a thing. And he, as the good shepherd, makes it clear that he would never do such a thing. No, he says, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now, hold on just a second. What's he talking about going astray here? Keep in mind what verse 10 said. If you despise one of these little ones, your despising one of these little ones has the very real possibility of sending them astray. And God's, Jesus has already said that God's going to send angels to minister to this one. So what we're not talking about here is some Christian who's gone off in sin somewhere, which is how we so often set this story. This is a Christian that's been hurt. This is a Christian that's been despised. This is a Christian who's been ostracized by one other believer or maybe a group of believers. And Jesus says, I'm coming. And I'm going to look for that one. I'm not going to leave that one as a good shepherd out there to just suffer. No, I'm going to leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray, that was offended, that was despised. It's not mindless. It's not unimportant. One of my sheep is not here. So it's not a shoulder shrug. It's a call to action, and Jesus says, I've got to take care of this now. So he leaves the flock of 99 in the care of his under-shepherds. Not that he doesn't care about them, but they're not in need right now. He leaves the flock of 99 in the care of under-shepherds and goes scouring the area in search of that wayward one, that helpless one, that single individual despised one. Why? Because that sheep is precious to him. That sheep is valuable to him. That sheep was purchased by his blood. That sheep needs him. So the good shepherd gets moving. Now watch this, verse 13. And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Oh, get this picture in your head. Here's this 
Strong shepherd, loving shepherd. And as he traverses the hills and the valleys in search of his lost sheep, he would be calling to it, knowing that his sheep recognize his voice. He would be looking in ditches and holes, streams and ponds, and then all of a sudden it happens. He hears it, and he knows that bleat. That's my sheep. And he goes to it, and he finds it. And truly, Jesus says, truly, amen, amen. When he finds that sheep and get this church, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Of course he does. The joy in finding something lost is different, and I would say greater, than the joy of just having something where you know where it is. Surely you've lost something, and when you found it, you were happier than when you had it before it was lost. And your proclamation is, I found it! Drawing special attention to it. Your joy amplified by the extinction of the loss of the item. Oh, you still love the things that you have, that you know where they are, but this, finding this is great. I found it! It was lost and I found it! It's back! And remember, Jesus is telling this story to show the importance of one believer, especially one that has been despised by another believer. And note that connection. A despised believer is in danger of being lost. A despised believer is in danger of being lost. Now, not lost in the eternal salvation sense, because we know that all those that God calls, He justifies, and those whom He justified, He will also glorify, has also glorified, not will, has also glorified them. So lost here is not lost eternally in a salvation sense, but lost in that they feel alone and abandoned. They're lonely. They're disillusioned because one of their brothers or sisters has condemned them, thought little of them, dismissed them. And so they wander off alone in their emotions, detached from the flock they were a part of, in danger of being attacked or ambushed by the enemy. And Jesus says, oh no, Mm -mm. I'm not going to let that happen. There are angels in the very presence of God who will be dispatched to their aid and the good shepherd himself will come looking for them to comfort, rescue, and build them up. And when he finds them, he will rejoice over the reconnection of this one more than he rejoices over the ones that aren't wandering off. He comes over the hilltop carrying that little one on his shoulders, drawing everyone's attention to this beautiful, wonderful, once lost, now found sheep that others might have just written off. He will not let this little one be off by itself. He will not let this little one be lost alone. He will not let this little one feel useless and rejected. No, he will come to that one and he will bring him home, rejoicing over that one more than the 99 that still had each other. And we're safe and secure. And he proclaims, look, he's back. Look, he's not alone anymore. Look, it's him and he is loved and he is mine and he is back with us. He is not despised. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Listen to me, believer, today. If you are feeling lost and alone and dejected and isolated, call out like a lost, bleating sheep and know that your shepherd is coming and he is preparing a party for you. He's going to celebrate over you. And I'm prone to keep running with this, but we got one more verse to cover. Verse 14. That's not right. It should be 18.14, not 8.14. So I'll read it here. Pay no attention to the man on the screen. Matthew 18.14 says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now note that first word. Let me find it here. I'll get it up here for you. Because I got it. So... It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That first word is so. Tying this to the previous verse, or actually the whole thought overall, 
Since you are not to despise any one believer, since Jesus is the good shepherd who will leave the 99 behind to seek out and find the one who has lost their way and is in danger, so then note and know this. All of that being said, so then this. And so what? So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is saying that he wants his guys, his people, to pull all of this together and get this point. And the point is, it is not the will of God in heaven that even one, not even one of these little ones, these believers in Jesus, should perish. It's not God's will that one slip through the cracks here or there. It's not the will of God that one despised believer gets disillusioned or offended to the point that they fall away. It's not God's will that even one of His children, not even one, should be cast to the side and forgotten or abandoned. Not even one. It is not the Father's will that even one of His children be looked down upon. It's not the will of The Father, that even one of His children would be condemned, disdained, or thought little of to the point that they are ostracized from the rest of the flock. And note that He uses the word perish. Be careful with that word. That could get you in a lot of theological trouble. Here's the definition of perish. Apolumi, which is fun to say. Everybody say apolumi. Apolumi. Y'all are not very good at that. Neither am I. 92 occurrences in the New Testament. It's translated as perish 33 times, destroy 26 times, lose 22 times, be lost 5 times, lost 4 times, and translated miscellaneously twice. Here's the definitions for perish. To destroy, to put out of the way entirely, abolish, put an end to ruin, render useless, to kill, to declare that one must be put to death, metaphorically, to devote or give over to eternal misery in hell, to perish, to be lost, ruined, destroyed, to destroy, to lose. So this has a lot of different meanings. It could mean a lot of different things. And what we have to do is take these definitions and see which one fits the overall picture that we've looked at today. And I think that very last one fits best. It's not the will of God the Father that one of His little ones should be lost like a sheep wandering off by itself. That's what it means to perish. So what's that mean? It means that in the grand scheme of things here in this passage today that God will not allow even one believer to wander off, be chased off, or stay lost. He will come Himself. He will send angels. He will see to it that this one, each and every one, is not despised, condemned, looked down upon, or thought little of. He will not let it happen. It is not His will. So... To go back to verse 10 where we started. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. You, believer, you, follower of Jesus, have to make sure that your attention and affection for each fellow believer is right. Because it matters immensely to God Himself. And we are to care about what He cares about. And you know who's not the center Focal point of the kingdom of heaven? You. Me. But if another believer despises us or casts us off, we get some attention really quick. But Jesus is saying, get your focus off of yourself and pay attention to each and every little one in this room. Because it's not God's will that one of these little ones should perish. We are to care about what He cares about. We are to do what He does. We are to mimic Him in the power of His Spirit. God is not going to yawn or wink at even one of His children being despised. So, neither should we. It's not God's will. And we are those disciples who pray that His will be done and His kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We are His ambassadors here on the earth, making His kingdom visible and attractive to the world around us. So how in the world could we possibly despise one of His children? And I've got four kids who don't always get along. They're good kids. 
And sometimes they bug the snot out of each other. And inside they're saying, Amen. So we're going to get on each other's nerves. We're not always going to agree about things. But our focus is to be on the care of the other person. Making sure that that one is not despised or dismissed or condemned or thought little of because that's not important to me. It has to be important to you. Or you're walking in the spirit of the world, not in the spirit of Christ. We are to be those who have such a view of ourselves, humble like a little child, dependent and needy ourselves, to the point that there's no possibility that we could look down on or think little of another because we know who we are and how great our need is. So when someone is needy or immature or annoying, and it's going to happen, I'm going to annoy you. You're going to annoy me. So then we know it's true of us too. We cannot look down on others because our posture is to be the one of humility and honesty about ourselves. This is how the kingdom of heaven looks and works. We cannot, cannot, cannot despise another because the grace extended to us by a holy God keeps us in awe and wonder to the point that we must needs share it with anyone and everyone that we can. And when we do that, we will never, we can never despise our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I am so humble, I am literally humbled by the grace of God that there's no way I can look down on somebody else because I got my face in the dirt knowing that I don't deserve any of this and that I am literally no better than anybody else and that your needs are more important than my needs. I can't look down on another if my face is in the dirt. Which is what Jesus is calling us to here. We can never, ever, ever, ever in the spirit of Christ despise our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what this passage is saying. And what a passage it is. So we turn our attention to application. Today's application is in 3D. We got three Ds this morning. And this one hits us where we live, for sure. We're going to look at three points. All the points start with D. That's not the important part. Remember them so that you can know what you should do. There's another D. So we got four Ds. We got three Ds this morning. Application Daddy, Details, and Despise. First application is Daddy. It is very, very easy to see the Father heart of God in this passage, isn't it? All of this talk in the last three weeks of believers in Jesus being little children, and then today to hear Jesus say that it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So what's the application point? You're Okay, Daddy, what's the application point for Daddy? Well, it's necessary that every single one of us knows that God is our Father. If you are a believer in Christ, God is your Father. Okay, great, thanks. What this does, it puts things in their proper perspective, especially our hardships and struggles. The passage today showed the heart of this Father, especially for the lonely and the endangered. If we know that God... As our Father is concerned with our suffering and is planning the timing and method for our rescue, that changes the way we look at our problems. He has not left us to ourselves because it's not His will that we should perish or be lost and stay lost. Straying and staying straying. Look at this thought. Of course it's Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with them 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. Boy, we like that first part. We're not so sure about that last part though, right? We like being heirs provided that we suffer. Provided that we suffer. Now, we obviously don't have time to go into all this in Romans 8, but simply put, listen to me. God has adopted us into His family. We have intimate contact and relationship with Him as individuals and corporately. And since we are His children, we are the heirs of all that is His, which is what? what what's His? The whole stinking universe is His. And we're heirs of that. As his children. Everything. So then, when we suffer, and we're going to, we are guaranteed that the end of our journey is glory with and for our Father. Glory with Him, glory for Him. And our Father will do whatever it takes to bring us into the end of our journey to be crowned and blessed for all eternity. He is the all-powerful one, and He will make sure that this happens. It's not His will that one of these little ones should perish. And listen, the will of God will be done. So, know that God, as your Father, believer, has everything. Listen to me. Your Father has everything on perfect schedule. And is literally, Romans 8, 28, causing all things to work together for our good and for His glory. Since He is your Father, rest in who He is, knowing His will for you, knowing who He is, His concern for you, and His ultimate plan changes even the most desperate situation. I'm lost, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless. He is coming. And He's coming for you. And His plan is perfect. Even what you're suffering right now. Trust your Father. He loves you so much that He is bending the entire will of the universe for your good. Down to the smallest detail, which is our next application point. Details. One sheep out of a hundred. It's no big deal, right? Let's put it into something we value. Dollars. You got a hundred dollars. You got a hundred dollar bills. You lose one. Ah, crap. Probably shouldn't say that. Well, I lost one. I got 99 now. Oh, well. Oh, well. That's what we would do, right? No big deal. Wrong. Listen to me. Listen to me. But Jason, listen to me. Me, listen to me. God cares about all of His children, every single one of them, enough to come after them one by one. Now that's plain to see in today's passage. Well, that's great, but what does it mean for us in our Christian lives? Listen to me. We have to see the importance of small things in our lives. The smallest of things even. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Because small things can make a big difference both positively and negatively. I'm going to make a statement that's going to send some of you all into panic mode. It does me. There is nothing in your Christian life that is not important. Nothing. What you watch, what you listen to, what you think about, what you feel, what you eat, what you drink, what you say, what you do, everything matters. Everything. There are no insignificant details in your life. Zero. As a matter of fact, I would say that the things that seem most insignificant can have the most significant impact on your life and your obedience and your affections for God and for others. We see a picture of this in Song of Solomon 2.15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. For our vineyards are in blossom. Well, what's that mean? Nope, I went too far. This verse is in relation to the couple in the song showing that little details, 
Little foxes can spoil the vine, the very lifeblood of their relationship. So they call on people to catch those little foxes. Catch them. Deal with them. Get rid of them. But they're just little foxes. Jesus says this in Luke 16.10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Ooh. Now there's a dart. If you aren't faithful in little things, and if you don't care about little things in your life, you will not be faithful with, and you will not be able to care about what you see as bigger things. God does not say, oh well, it's no big deal, not worth my time, i got a universe to run. And neither should we. It's just one sheep. Just 1% of the total. Still got the 99. But God made a bigger deal about the one than He did the 99. It's a big deal. And I know that some of you are starting to freak out. And you're thinking about your dirty car. Or the cobwebs in your ceiling corners. Feeling like I'm undoing all those years of therapy that you've done to get rid of those things and give up your control issues. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about cobwebs and dirty floors in your car. I'm talking about sin in your heart. And there is no little sin. There is no thing that doesn't matter. There is no word that doesn't matter what you say to another believer or an unbeliever for that matter. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter. It's an issue that does not matter. Every issue matters. Every word matters. Especially when we're talking about how we treat other people. Especially other believers. There are no minor details. It's all a big deal. It's all a big deal. And we have to care about what God cares about. And I'm telling you guys, God hates sin. The little ones, the big ones. And so should we. We are to care about what God cares about. Do not pshaw it away and say it doesn't really matter. In the grand scheme of things, God's going to overlook this. Praise God by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. That little sin has been atoned for. And it will not be brought up again. But if you're not faithful in a little thing, you're not going to be faithful in a big thing. And your fellowship and your communion with God is going to be impacted and affected. Your fellowship and your communion with other believers is going to be affected and that matters. All the details matter. So don't act like something's not important, especially if somebody says it's important. This is important to me. Eh, I don't care. That is antichrist. And it matters. It matters. All of it. And as we'll deal with in our last application point, not just all of it, but all of them. And our last point is despise. Let me just jump into this point real quick. Who do you despise? Now this could be a big despise or itty bitty despise. As large as race. And let me just say, if you've got racial thoughts and feelings, kill them. Racism is also antichrist. If you look at anybody and judge them by the color of their skin, their ethnicity, their culture, and say, I don't like them, you're walking in sin. And you need to confess it and repent of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. Maybe it's an itty-bitty tiny deal that somebody in this building here this morning just gets on your nerves, just rubs you the wrong way. And maybe they said something that really just pushed your buttons this morning. Deal with it. Do not despise your brother or your sister. Because it all matters. This is not just liking someone. It's to think little or nothing of someone. To despise them. To cast them away. Write them off. That thing that they're talking about, I mean, stupid. That's not the attitude of Christ. See 
that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of Christ's children. This calls us back to like the previous two messages in this chapter. It's like Jesus is trying to tell us something. It brings us back to humility. We cannot look down on, we cannot ignore, we cannot think little of any of Jesus' little ones. We cannot despise them. And this is ultimately a hard issue. You may smile and wave, you may talk to them and be nice to people's faces, but what's going on in your heart when you come to that brother or sister who disagrees with you or who acts, looks, smells, or thinks differently than you do? Some people just get on your nerves, don't they? How do you deal with these fellow believers who push your buttons? Do you look down on them? Roll the eyes of your heart at them? Or do you love them with the love of Jesus, aware that this little one, like you, is beloved of the Father and kept by the very work of Christ Himself? The acts and works of despising people ultimately come down to pride in our lives. If I can look down on someone, then I have elevated myself above them. And this is not the way of the cross. This is not the way of Christ Himself, who humbled Himself and became a curse for us and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we could know and experience the blessings of God. That's what Jesus did. Jesus said, you are more important than me. Your life is more important than my life. I'm going to lay my life down for you. Now... He is exalted, and He is the prime and primary person in the universe. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. That's, that's true. But that name was bestowed upon Him after He humbled Himself. Finish with this passage. This is... Whew. But He gives more grace, James says, James 4, 6-12. through 12. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now watch this. What's the next verse? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who am I to judge my neighbor? Who am I to despise my brother or my sister in Christ? So what's the call? It's not to despise. It is to not despise. Which means that I have to humble myself before each and every individual believer. Each and every individual believer. Every one. Every one. Every single one matters. And I'm not trying to get political here, okay? But what I am saying is, my heart attitude, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, is that when I see you as my brother, as my sister in Christ, you are more important than me. And I will not despise you. I will not cast you off. I will not dismiss you because what you're saying isn't important to me. See to it that you do not despise even one of these little ones. Daddy's watching, y'all. And he's in the details. So see to it, Christian, that you do not despise any of these little ones. Let's pray. Father, who in the world are we that you would look upon us? What in the world, what in the universe makes you incline your heart toward us? I'm afraid so often 
we commend ourselves and make ourselves the focal point of your kingdom. But God, you only do that when we're despised. You only do that when we're cast off. And you will leave the 99 and come find us when we're cast off. So God, I, I ask you that you would help me to make, by the power of your spirit, that I, that I would make my heart right toward my brothers and my sisters. And that I would see to it that I do not despise even one of them. And that doesn't mean that I hate them. It means that I don't think about them or that I condemn them or that I don't want to be around them because they get on my nerves. God, may I not be that person. And not just in this building, but in the big wide world where your holy Catholic church operates in this world where you are establishing your kingdom. And we ask that your kingdom would come, your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. May we be like Christ in our relationships with each other. May we see to it that we do not despise each other. By the power of your spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now. Now. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day.